So these sessions in the library this weekend have been focusing very much on the power of God, the ways in which we see his power um, demonstrated in various ways. And so this hour, Tyler is going to be speaking to us on God's power in the Ten Plagues. Tyler originally set out to be a welder for the oil and natural gas industry, and he gained certification through uh, in metallurgy and welding tech from Lincoln College of Technology in 2014. After working for Emerson as a TIG welder in Boulder, Tyler decided that he needed to do something different. And so he pursued a path to become a full-time minister in Christ's church. He currently holds a Bachelor's of Biblical Studies from Bear Valley, a Master of Biblical Studies from Bear Valley, and a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies from Heritage Christian University. And he remains involved in graduate school and is working towards an MDiv, Master of Divinity. He and his wife, Natalie, are both Colorado natives, currently reside in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. He also serves as the Director of Development here at the Bear Valley Bible Institute and has had that role for not quite a year or right about a year and has done a, a fantastic job, especially when you consider that he was thrust into that role in uh, the midst of COVID, <laughs> um, made for an interesting transition. But I will say this before he begins. One of the things I, I have come to appreciate about Tyler <coughs> is his passion for Old Testament texts. I have, in my experience, there are many, many of us New Testament Christians that sometimes we don't really know what to do with the Old Testament. <laughs> we, we, uh, we study it and we love the stories, but we struggle to see a lot of the theological connection and we sometimes struggle to connect some of those dots just in, um, in our everyday study, but Tyler has really found a passion for these texts, and he's done a fantastic job in his study of showing how it is the same God. And God has been working all the way through from Genesis through maps to bring us where we are in our walk with him. And so I, I cannot think of anybody else that I know of who is more fitting to discuss this topic, God's power in the ten plagues. So Tyler, come preach the word to us, brother. Thank you, Corey. I am certainly excited to uh, bring you this lesson. Um, it's one that I have grown to love and have been in awe of for some time now. Um, if you read the Old Testament, and even if you read the New Testament, you will see that the Exodus is brought up numerous times as a constant theme in God's Word. Um, out of the land of Egypt, how God is constantly reminding the people that He is the God who saved and delivered the people out of Egypt. And when we look in the historical narrative of Exodus, we see quite the story unfold for us. And one of the, the biggest bummers, I think, for lack of better terms, in the Church of Christ is that we get these stories, we get these accounts as children, and that cements in us a foundational understanding of what took place in the Exodus or what took place in all these different stories. But sometimes, and, and far too often, I would argue, we leave them as those childhood stories, and we don't understand we don't fully grasp the terror, the awe, the power that is to be found within these accounts. For example, when we look at some of these accounts, we have Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, we get great insight into who God is. Because in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, it says that God was hurt, that he was convicted in his own feelings toward uh, his disposition and humanity. It's because the intentions of man were solely based on violence and evil. And so God saw fit to flood the earth. Well, we sometimes get this uh, this narrative or this picturesque scene of 
this arc with, you know, you've got the giraffe neck sticking out. You've got the elephants who are kind of just having their little party on top of the ark. You've got Noah with his family. What a pleasant time. It's, it's another one of those cruise moments as you're sailing off to Disney. But the ark, I would argue, is one of the most terrifying moments within Genesis. You have this water that is coming from the sky that the people have never seen before. And so when, when Noah says, I'm building an ark to prepare for a flood, the people kind of discount that. And say, well, you're crazy. We've never seen water come from the sky. And sure enough, God promotes that idea and is allowing water to come from the sky that we know as rain. And this rain is not just a simple rain. It flooded the entire world as we know it. What a crazy storm that must have been. But we know that it was Noah and his family who were the sole survivors of the the flood in Genesis. And so can you imagine being in Noah's shoes or Noah's sandals at the time that the flood is happening? That he gets in the ark, he's got all these animals that are probably uh, chaotic and crazy and, and wondering what's going on. He seals up that ark and he's getting pre- to prepare himself for quite the journey in this ark. And I've talked with Corey Sawyers about this and he shares the same interest that I do in the Old Testament. And can you imagine the devastation that would have come and the, the tragedy and the trauma that would have resulted in the flood as you're sitting there, Noah, hearing the screams of people banging on the side of the ark to let them in? Because they now see this as a sign of deliverance, that this is God who is now going to deliver Noah and his family. And this flood is is starting to swell up, and the waters are rising, and people are starting to drown. So not only are you hearing people screaming, but you're hearing people drown and losing their lives. And as the floods subsided, do you think it was just peaceful, calm waters with a beautiful scene? If you've ever seen the devastation of a flood, you know it's anything but picturesque. You know that it's traumatic. You know that there are things so tragic like bodies that are hovering on the surface of the waters, dead trees, animals. It would have been a tragic time to be in the shoes of Noah within the flood series. And yet sometimes we don't promote our mind. We don't advance our mind in our studies of the Old Testament to understand some of these tragedies. Moving forward, we have other moments like Daniel in the lion's den. And we have those cute little pictures that we have of Daniel being tossed in this little den. And we've got these lions that are now friendly and they're rolling over on their back, wanting a belly scratch and everything else. But do you realize that Daniel was standing before the world leader at that time? Babylon was arguably the world power in the ancient world. And here's Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm not sure if Daniel knows quite what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking at this time, because he's seen Nebuchadnezzar flip-flop. Well, after Nebuchadnezzar, you have King Darius. And King Darius is now taking over uh, what is to be in Daniel chapter 4, after Nebuchadnezzar gets humbled, um, and King Darius shows up. And here's Daniel standing before King Darius, saying, I will continue to worship my God, I will continue to pray to my God, despite what your little people, your satraps, are counseling against me. And so Daniel knew that this was going to be his fate, being thrown into the den of lions. What a tragic and horrifying sight. We think of the persecution of the first century to be horrifying with the animals and the games in the arena. And Daniel was being thrown to the animals at this time. And we think of a den as maybe having a translucent light or an LED bulb up in the ceiling. It would have been dark. There would have been lions lurking in the shadows. And if you remember from the text, the lions were hungry. They had prepared the lions for Daniel's fate. And sometimes we don't progress in our VBS stories to the point where 
it gets a little graphic because if you remember what happens to those who accuse Daniel, they get thrown into the lion's den. And before they can hit the ground, the text says they are devoured by the lions. What a fierce sight it would have been to stare these lions in the eyes and to think, my God is mighty and my God can deliver me from this. We move on and you have Jonah and the big fish, right? And what a, what a fun story this is for kids is you've got Jonah and he's arguing with God. He tries to run away from God and, and goes off and, and then all of a sudden there's this big storm and Jonah says, oh, it's me. Just throw me into the water and, and I'll be the one who's, who's taken up by this fish. I'm the one who is the problem of this. But do you realize that they were sailing on boats that were not equipped for storms? So the storm, number one, would have been terrifying to all. And it's very evident within the text of Jonah that this was a terrifying storm. And then Jonah has the boldness to say, it's me. We sometimes give Jonah grief because we think he's running away from God and he is running away from God. But at the very least, Jonah said, I'm the problem. I'm what's causing this storm. He gets thrown into the sea and this monster fish comes in and swallows Jonah up. And we have the pictures within our mind, the little clip heart cheesy pictures that we have in the Church of Christ of Jonah camping out with a little campfire in the belly of this fish. And he's got his s'mores over there. And he's just hanging out for the time being, right? Can you imagine how disgusting it would have been in the belly of this fish? Now, being a Colorado native, I'm not a big seafood person. I like the mild seafood like uh, crab and, and catfish. But the main reason why I don't like seafood is the smell. And you can tell the smell of a seafood place when you walk in and you know, wow, this is Red Lobster. I love the roll or I love the biscuits, but I hate the smell. This would not have been a pleasant scene or a pleasant sight for Jonah to be in the belly of this fish. Especially for the duration that Jonah was. What was he eating during that time? How was he surviving? What was he thinking? Was he thinking, when will I die, God would have been a miserable time for Jonah. And then as he gets spit up onto shore, um, what a tragedy and what a, what a traumatic situation for Jonah that we don't necessarily always comprehend. What about David and Goliath? Now at the time, of course, we have to follow uh, biographical themes and patterns of, of people, but Goliath was a monster at the time. And we understand that from our DBS education. We understand that Goliath was much larger than David, but David was just a little farm boy. Right, He was the youngest of the pack, and he says, I'll take on Goliath. And what does he have? He's got an AR-15, right, ready to just snipe him from 300 yards away. He's got a stone and a sling. He's got five stones and a sling. And he faces up with this giant. Now, I've never been in a full-on brawl with someone. I've never really squared up, though I've wanted to. Um, I've never really squared up with anybody. But I wouldn't want to square up with Goliath. Especially the Philistines. Do you realize how nasty and awful the Philistine people were? They worshipped pagan gods. They didn't believe in Yahweh God. They were uh, constantly consuming themselves with pagan worship, pagan idol worship, and all the, all the things that go with that that we won't get into because it's horrible. And I realize that there are some younger ears here. But then you've got David and Goliath. And then, of course, we stop with David defeating Goliath. Yay, good for him. But then he chops his head off. Mm-hmm. We don't usually carry that in our VBS stories. This would have been quite the sight, quite the image, to see a young farm boy carrying around the head of this giant saying, God is victorious. God delivers. God is the one who will save us. And then we get to our passage that we're going to be talking about today, and that is the ten plagues. 
And unfortunately, the 10 plagues kind of fall in this category of VBS education, where we think, well, I know about the 10 plagues. I know, I know what happens there. I know that Moses and his people were under a heavy burden and an affliction, and then God sends these 10 different plagues, and then they're released to their sight. So my goal this morning is to uh, hopefully remind you of the things. Jude in Jude chapter 5 says, although you once fully knew it, I remind you that our Lord Jesus saved you from out of a land of Egypt. And we're going to talk about that at the end of this lesson, too. But Jude saw it fit to remind the people in the first century of the Exodus. This is a monumental story in our story. Do not isolate yourself as far as saying, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Jew. This isn't my story. This is your story. God saved us from a land of Egypt. So my goal this morning is to hopefully um, get you excited and passionate about this study, as I have. And I'll tell you. We will not come close to exhausting every detail within um, the Exodus. There are so many scholars that spend their entire careers on the Exodus alone because it's such a monumental theme within the scripture of God's word. We're going to start off in Exodus chapter 1, and this will be more of a, a Bible class than it is a lecture of sorts. Um, and we're going to be kind of going through this uh, piece by piece to understand a little bit more about the Exodus, understand the context, understand the situation, and hopefully make some application there at the end um, to help us find inspiration from God through this wonderful story. Notice in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. This is Pharaoh speaking, and he's understanding the problem of population growth. It's interesting because in Genesis chapter 11, if you remember the, the divine council, the divine meeting that happened with Genesis chapter 11 and the Elohim, and what they were discussing with the Tower of Babel, what was the main problem? Behold, they are multiplying and they are becoming powerful. God himself, with the divine com uh, committee, realized that there is power and population. So if God realized that, then Pharaoh also realized that. And he understood that this king of Egypt, uh, that the Israel uh, people were growing to become too many. And so what's the solution? Well, look at verse 11 of chapter 1. Therefore, they set taskmasters task over them to afflict them. With heavy burdens. Verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. This is kind of the introductory context that we have here in terms of what Israel was facing. And then we have the infamous burning bush. And that could be an entire separate lecture in of itself. And the majesty that's found in that burning bush and how it communicate and how he communicates to Moses. Um, and so we have this dialogue between Moses and Moses says, I don't want to be the spokesman for you, God. And God says, you will be my spokesman. And in fact, God later in scripture says that you will be like a God to Pharaoh and the people and your brother Aaron will be uh, your prophet. And so God puts Moses in this position, despite him not wanting to be there. And Moses was given powerful signs in order to understand that one of the uh, signs that he was given was the serpents turning into a staff. And this would be a monumental image or symbol that Moses would keep moving forward. Um, before we get into the main text, I want you to notice something in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22. This is something that we often overlook, and it's something that's imperative for us to understand in order to properly grasp the Exodus and the ten plagues. Notice what God's view of his people are. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Israel is my firstborn son. 
And if we fast forward all the way to the tenth plague, what was the tenth plague that was warned and then fulfilled? Death of the firstborn son. Notice what God says in verse 23. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse me, if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You let mine go, otherwise I will take yours. God's making a promise and he's making a threat to the people of Egypt, saying you had better let them go because I'm God. I'm more powerful than you and I will end you. And then we get into chapter 5 where Moses stands up and then the, the burden of the people gets even more severe with bricks um, without straw. Uh, and then we kind of get into where we have the whole dialogue leading up to the ten plagues of the people of Israel. Now, Pharaoh says a question, or he asks a question, that I think a lot of society today could relate to. His question is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is God? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. The world outside of these walls is asking, who is this God that I should obey his voice, follow his statutes, fall in line with this Christian life that you profess? Who is this Lord? Well, one of the great things about the Exodus and the ten plagues is that Pharaoh would come to know who God is. And by way of that, God would tell them in chapter 6 and verse 7 and also 7 and verse 5, that they will know that I am the Lord. This sets up a very good base for us to understand why God goes through with the ten different plagues. And I would argue, too, that plagues is really um, kind of a loose term for what's going on here. I would suggest that signs is a more appropriate word. Because when we look at Exodus chapter 7, and verse 4, he says, by great acts of judgment, that God is going to be doing these things in order to judge is or to judge Egypt, but also by way of of showing them that he is God, that they may know that he is the Lord. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 5. He says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. Notice how this is taking place before any of the signs are performed. That God is confident in his plan. He says, This is going to work. This is going to happen. And so the people of Israel followed suit, and we'll see how that benefited them later. So when we start getting into our text, we'll notice that the ten signs of God are to show that he is God, that he's still the one in control, because sometimes we self-perceive uh, that we are king, that we are Pharaoh, that we are God of our own little kingdom. Uh, and the proper understanding of God is that he is God of all, that he's God of me, that he's God of you, that he's God of us, that he's God of this universe. And so that's what God is going to communicate to these people within the ten signs. So we'll start with the first sign, and that is uh, water turned to blood. And again, we kind of uh, we discredit this one because of how horrifying it would have been, for lack of better terms. It would have been disgusting for an entire river to turn to blood. And sometimes we discount that. But notice in Exodus chapter 7, and verse 14, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And of course, we see that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, and he says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Again, this great symbol of God showing Moses a sign and then God would show these people a sign. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God, the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Uh, now, 
Look at verse 18. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Here we have an incredible feat of God because he is taking um, hydrogen and oxygen molecules and turning them into hemoglobin and plasma. He's taking H2O and turning it into blood. Now, we'll see within the text that they are these magicians who claim to match the power of God. I'm sorry, but adding a dissolvent to water like Kool-Aid or, or anything like that is not the power of God. A four-year-old can do that. Turning water to blood is an act of God. Making the fish die because of that is an act of God. And sometimes we have this false conclusion of, oh, it's just a flowing water or this flowing river, but do you realize how thick blood is? Do you realize how much blood stinks in large quantities? Do you realize how disgusting this would have been for the people who get their drinking water from the Nile? They are completely uh, thirsted from everything that is taking place from the Nile because of this first sign. Notice the, the obedience from Moses and Aaron. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And notice how God's promise comes to fruition in verse 21. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. It's not just the Nile. It's all of Egypt. That there is blood everywhere. And what a perfect start to the first signs of God by saying, I'm going to devastate you. And if you don't get it here, then you won't get it later. And that's exactly what takes place. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Now that's a, a perfect illustration of what a hard heart looks like, where we see an act of God happen right before our eyes, and Pharaoh walks away from it thinking nothing of it, because some magician was able to convince and uh, delude Pharaoh into thinking that they could do the same thing. <clears throat> Moving on, we have the frogs. And again, this is kind of where the VBS stories start to kick in. Like, oh, well, the, the water to blood is a little weird. That's a little dark and scary. But frogs! Who's scared of frogs? Why is this such a bad thing? Well, we'll learn about that here in a second. Chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Notice how every plague God convenes with Moses first. And you'll see that thread carried out through all ten plagues. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Notice what God's intentions were. He wants them to be gone, away from Egypt, and he wants them to remain serving God through this. Uh, and again, we could spend more time talking about what that would be later on. But notice verse 3, The Nile shall swarm with frogs, that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. There were frogs everywhere. It's one thing to see a frog out in the wild and kind of stand back and think, that's disgusting. There's a little slimy creature. I don't want anything to do with that. But can you imagine have your frogs infiltrate your house? If you know, uh, some of my friends who I might be talking about, they, they live in Oklahoma, and they recently had to um, undergo their dream house that turned into a nightmare. And what I mean by that is they bought this dream house in Oklahoma. It was the perfect house for them. They saw themselves staying here for years. And all of a sudden, they saw one brown recluse walk through the house, and they didn't really think anything of it, killed it, threw it away, went on with their business. And then they started seeing more brown recluses come into their house. And they set out traps. They called pest control. 
They did everything in their power. They called experts on brown recluses to come out and clear their house of this. Of course, with three little kids at home, you don't want brown recluses just roaming around your house. They said it got so bad that they had hundreds of brown recluses killed by the time that they were leaving their house. In fact, um, he's a good friend of mine. He preaches at a church in Oklahoma. His wife was sitting on a pew. In the middle of a sermon, he saw her get up and walk out. And on the pew was a brown recluse that had followed her in her purse all the way to the church building and crawled out on the pew. Their house was overtaken with these brown recluses. They were a nuisance. It had to come down to them selling the house, getting rid of it, which they posted in the MLS listing, brown recluse problem, um, and then getting rid of 75% of their belongings to get rid of every brown recluse that they could because they will follow you to your next location. That infiltration type of mindset is exactly what's happening here with the frogs, that they were everywhere. They were in the ovens. They were in the kneading bowls. They were in the houses. In fact, Psalm 105.30 says that the frogs were in the king's chambers, the most secret, most confined place in the world at that time, and the frogs were there. Now, this is a nuisance. This is a problem for a lot of different reasons. Asaph in his psalm would say that the frogs were the destroyers of people, that these frogs would drive people and saying there's a psychological warfare going on here with the frogs, and there's also just the physical warfare with frogs everywhere. Again, this is not just simply an act of nature. This is an act of God demonstrating his power over nature, over the animal kingdom, and we'll see that with the next two plagues as well. These frogs were a nuisance of people, and they are recorded in history for us to be as the destroyers of people. Now, I never thought frogs could be such a nuisance, but I certainly wouldn't want to be in the Egyptians' world uh, when this was taking place. Notice in chapter 8, verse 10, he said, Tomorrow Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. This sign of frogs was so much more than just going to PetSmart and unleashing some frogs. This this act of, of God, this sign of God was to show the people that there is no one like him. In fact, this is, uh, this is leading up to the first sign that no magician could duplicate. The magician started saying, okay, we're, we're getting a little bit out of our league with these signs that are taking place. Uh, sign number three is the gnats. The Lord said to Moses in chapter 8, in verse 16, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust off the earth of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of the Egypt. Um, if you notice in chapter 8 and verse 19 of this uh, account, the magicians could not duplicate this. This is one of the, the shortest signs that we have recorded in Exodus. It's only a few verses long. But notice in verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. These magicians were working for Pharaoh, they were duplicating signs saying, Pharaoh, don't listen to them. This is just, this is all just illusions. This is just God trying to scare you, or, or if you even believe in a God, this is, they're just doing these things. Now, to me, the frogs would have gotten me. Or, step number one, the water to blood, that's a pretty sure indicator that God's involved in this situation. But for the magicians, those who are paid by Pharaoh, those who are close to Pharaoh to say, this is the work of the finger of God. What a powerful statement for those to finally convince in their minds, and yet Pharaoh's heart remained hardened from this. Again, we think of gnats. What's, what's the worst that could happen? Well, Moses said, as he struck the earth, the dust came up, and as it were, the gnats filled the land. Again, what a nuisance. This is not just out fishing by a lake in Tennessee where you've got some bugs flying around. This is a swarm of creatures who are bombarding you. And then it would even ramp up more. 
uh, and the fourth sign as we get to the flies. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning. This is probably where we get our Church of Christ theology for everything starting early in the morning. <laughs> and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people live go that they may serve me. What does God want? He wants his people free and he wants his people to remain worshiping and praising him. And that's God's intention through all this. Or else, verse 21, this is like when your mom says, or else. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, verse 22, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. A lot to unpack there. Notice first that these flies would be everywhere. Just like the gnats, you've got the gnats swarming around and then get a little bit bigger of a creature and there are the flies. And again, this is something that can't be duplicated by magicians. You can't just go and put a leash on a fly and bring it in and start hoarding all these flies. They just came out of nowhere and started bombarding these people. Now it's a bother in Colorado to see one fly in your house. you got to get out the little bug assault gun and shoot it. Um, but then I learned in Tennessee, and I don't see Corey in here, but uh, we learned very quickly that in Tennessee, when you leave the car and all the little flying creatures at night, they flock toward the light. And if you live out in the country, there is no surrounding light except for your house and the car. So you turn off the car, you turn off all the lights in the car, and you get out, and everyone waits by the front door. And you go, one, two, three, and you open up the door, and everyone goes inside the house, and you shut the door as quickly as you can. And then you go and get the fly swatter, and you're having to kill everything that made it in with that brief two millisecond window. This is not like that. This is worse. This is flies constantly consuming every aspect of your life to the point, think about this, to the point that you can't think about anything else except for these annoying little buzzing creatures all over creation. You think that's going to affect your daily life? You think you're just going to ignore flies that are running into you? And then the scripture says that they were even on the ground. You know, it's disgusting when you go to places like Oklahoma and you've got little creatures on the ground and you kind of walk through them and you hear all the crunching noises and kind of slide a little bit. And I'm getting a little too graphic there. <laughs> but the flies were on the ground. They were everywhere. They were infiltrating the lives of these people. They were ruining the lives of these people. Who would ever think that a small little insect would ruin the life of an individual? But God knew. And God said, let it be known that I am the God in the midst of the earth. And notice in verse 22, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. That word for set apart is used in a couple of different places here within this context of Exodus in chapter 9 and verse 4 and also in 11 chapter 7. And it really means to, to make a distinction. So not only will the Egyptians know that God is God and that God is in control of everything, but the Egyptians will also know that these people are of God. Because while they're dealing with all this chaos, we're only on sign number four, they look down and they see Goshen where the people of Israel are residing and nothing's going on. Everything seems to, seems to be fine. The grass is truly greener on the other side of these people. Notice in verse 24, And the Lord did so, and there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and in, into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt, and the land was ruined. By the swarms of flies. Now, I don't think that word ruined is there by happenstance. I don't think it's there on accident. I think the translators did a good job in saying that the land was ruined. It was devastated. It was destroyed by the swarms of these flies. Um, the worst thing is to, what do you do with all the dead flies? You don't have a Dyson to vacuum them all up. They're just laying out and becoming uh, worthless for these people. The fifth sign is 
the Egyptian livestock to die. Now, think in terms of economy, how devastating this would be. We look at Job, and, and one of the aspects of Job and his suffering was that his livestock would, would die. It would perish. Um, that basically meant his economy tanked. Mm-hmm. Well, the land of Egypt was one that was known for their great prosperity. They were known for their great wealth. They were known for flaunting that wealth in front of others. And God says, I'm going to take that away from you. I'm going to kill your livestock and utterly destroy it. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. God continues to bring this up. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. And the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. God is making a holy uh, distinction between his people and the people of Egypt, and he's saying, all of your livestock will die. And, and look what happens in verse 6, and the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died. All, not some, not a majority, not a fraction, all. We need to read that word with the emphasis that it is that the entirety of the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh said, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now, I don't know if people of today's world would be as hardened as Pharaoh is, but it seems that sometimes we find those who are stubborn in our life who still will not come around to God despite every sign that is presented before them. And we know that God is playing a role in Pharaoh's life as well at this point. When we get to the sixth plague, or the sixth sign, we see that there is this awful sight of boils. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 8, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of all Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln, and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air. And it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. Even those magicians who were saying, this is an act of God, Pharaoh, we can't do this. Well, guess what? Now you're roped into this as well. You're still submitting to Pharaoh, even though you committed, you, you confessed in your life, this is God. You're still holding to Pharaoh. So guess what? You're associated now with all these boils. Uh, what a horrible thing that this was. It must have been 10 years ago I went uh, with some friends to a swimming pool. Colorado, that's kind of dangerous because the UV rays are a little bit more extreme here. Um, I don't know all the nuances of that, but it's probably altitude. But we were in the water, which means water magnifies UV rays. And I didn't know that. And I sure learned about that. Because it was 4th of July, we're swimming in the swimming pool, and I got out and I was like, oh, I'm a little toasty, I'm a little red. I got home and then boils started breaking out on me. And if you've ever had a boil, you know that it's a painful situation to be in. You know it's uncomfortable. You know you can't really do much with them. So imagine then Aaron standing up there, throwing up the dust of this kiln, having it spread over everywhere. Again, another act of God that this uh, ash went everywhere, the soot went everywhere, and boils were covering their bodies. And all the beasts of the field, um, so much so that even the magicians could not stand before Pharaoh. Verse 12, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Uh, and then we get to the seventh sign, and that is hail. A few years ago here in Colorado, we had a massive hailstorm. It destroyed one of our malls that had beautiful skylights. It, the mall was uh, architected in a way that it resembled a big O, so you could walk laps in this mall. And 
all the skylights were made of glass. And this hailstorm came in, destroyed all the glass, and flooded the mall. And then that's when I really started to understand hail is a powerful thing, especially when you get a little bit bigger than your golf ball size. Well, imagine, not as an act of nature, but an act of God, as he sends hail among these people in Egypt, of all places. Have you ever considered that? This is Egypt, and there's hail coming down from the sky, pelting these people and destroying their land. Notice what the text says. Rise up early in the morning, there we have it again, and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and your servants, and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. One of the main themes in the Exodus is that God would be known. One of the main themes that we need to have in our life is that God is known, that we know, that we recognize who God is. For by now I could have put all put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so God would send upon the earth the hail, and he makes this a great display toward the people that he would be known and that his name would be known in the land. Notice in verse 26 we have this separation once more. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And we know that this hail, in the prior verse in 25, the hail struck down everything that was in the field and the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Again, keeping in mind the economic status of Egypt now is already being destroyed. But then not only is your livestock dead, now your plants are dead. Have fun with that. Oh, also, by the way, your water is blood. So um, we're in a real good position now. We're only on number seven. The eighth sign is the locust. We have locusts brought up in the Old Testament. Again, we don't quite have the time to uh, dissect this if we're going to really keep moving, if that's a good word to use for locusts. Um, but these locusts were also a nuisance, and once more, God is going to show his sign, his power, in the face of these people. Chapter 10, and verse 1, And the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart uh, and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done. Notice how he uses signs. What signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Not only was this for Moses, notice who it was also for. Your son and your grandson. This is going to be a generation, generational lesson that the people needed to hear how God would be known among the people. And so God sends these locusts. They consume the entire earth. And it was quite the scene to be there among God and his people. And yet the land of Goshen was still untouched by this. We get into the ninth plague, and then you have utter darkness. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt and darkness to be felt. Have you ever felt darkness? Have you ever been in a place so dark that you can't even see the hand in front of you? Um, oftentimes people go to Cave of the Winds in Colorado or they go to other caves and Sometimes the caves will turn off all the lights and you can't see anything. In fact, you start to lose your sensor or senses and there's sensory deprivation happening. You don't know which way is up or which way is down. There is darkness to be felt. Now, I've never been outside in open air where darkness can be felt. And perhaps that's living in the 21st century and there's lights literally everywhere. And we've got the stars and the moon to help illuminate our sky. Here, there is darkness to be felt. There is darkness among the entire land. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Not for just a moment, 
not for a couple hours, but for three days, these people had to live in darkness. Verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. There's a social uh, aspect of this that would be tragic for these people, a social aspect that would be traumatic for these people. We know very good and well what quarantine is, what it's like to be distanced from everyone, but we still have our phones, right? We can still be connected. They didn't move. They didn't see each other for three days. Have you ever been isolated from everyone and everything for three days solid with nothing but darkness? The psychological warfare that's taking place with the darkness. It's not just darkness over the land. It's not just one of those cool things where God made the sun stand still. It was one of those moments where these people were in absolute terror. And keep in mind the prior context to all this. You've got things that are stinking in the land. You've got frogs, dead frogs, flies, locusts. You've got water to blood, livestock that's dead, that's rotting. And now you're sitting in this land of darkness thinking, what have we got ourselves into? Have we not listened to the voice of God? And this is almost like God putting Egypt in time out. They didn't see one another. They didn't speak to anyone. They didn't move from their place. They had three days to think about who they were and what they were doing to the people of Israel. And then we move on to the last sign that God would have for these people. And here's where it gets really deep. And there's only six minutes left on the clock. So unfortunately, we can't go so far deep into talking about um, the lamb and the Passover and all that. That could be an entirely separate lesson. But we're going to try and talk about this a little bit. Notice how there's a final plague threatened uh, in chapter 11 and verse 5. And it says, every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. Where did God say this prior? Chapter 4 and verse 23, he said, Israel is my firstborn son. If you don't let them go, I'm taking your firstborn. And God was going to deliver on that promise. Notice how in chapter 12, uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this mouth shall be for the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the first year for you, of the, of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, and then uh, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons according to what each can eat and shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. The blood of this blemish-free land would allow God to pass over in judgment the land of Goshen. And guess what he would do to those who were rebellious? He'd take their firstborn son. Notice how traumatic this was in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. This word for great cry in the Hebrew is a shout. It's a wailing. It's used in Amos to promote this idea of, of without control, wailing, weeping. Pharaoh woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of crying families, weeping families, because of the death of the firstborn. God said, Israel is my firstborn son. I'll protect them. I'll deliver them. Don't stand in the way of me and my firstborn. And so God delivered on his promise to that. And then we have the Exodus. The Exodus is an incredible story for a number of different reasons. And perhaps one of the greatest aspects of the Exodus is the reaction 
of Moses. If you look at Exodus chapter 15, we have this incredible song of Moses that's quoted in the Psalms. And Moses looks up to God after, of course, the, the Red Sea adventure and everything else that took place there. Of course, my lecture is only on the ten plagues and God's power in it. But Moses shouts to God. He's praising God for delivering him from these people. Egypt at that time was the ruling power in the world. No one could save Israel from Egypt except for God. We're living in a land of Egypt. I don't know if you know that. We're living under a thumb that is constantly pushing us out of the way, constantly oppressing us. Maybe not to the point of Exodus and maybe not to the point of Egypt, but we are the minority. We are the ones who society constantly looks at and says, who are you? Who is God that I should obey his voice? And I want to promote three different lessons that we can learn from the Exodus and then the lesson of the year. <coughs> Number one, holiness means being wholly devoted to God. Exodus is brought up, as I said at the beginning of the lesson, in numerous different parts of the biblical text. In Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, he said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt so that I could be your God and you'd be my people. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 30, there he's talking to Moses and talking to um, Jephon. And he talks about all these different aspects of how the Israelites were then rebelling. They saw these great signs and they're rebelling against God. And he says, only those who are holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, are mine. They are the only ones who will receive the inheritance of the land. Holiness means being wholly devoted to God. Not being the magicians who said, Pharaoh, this is an act of God, but I'm still going to latch onto you. I'm still going to follow under your command. Not being the servants of, of Pharaoh, not falling in line with the powers of the world, but being about God's kingdom, being about God's people, being Israel, the firstborn. <clears throat> being holy means being wholly devoted to God. Number two, the Lord is powerful, intentional, and relational. God is powerful because we understand that no human being, no world power, can match up to his his integrity. We look at verses like Daniel chapter 2 and verse 21, and we understand that God is the one who raises kings up and lowers kings down. Despite what our political warfare is in the church, God is king. Despite who is president, God is king. Because what do we understand from the text of Daniel? That God is the one who is still in control, not these other uh, world powers. Now, we have um, obligations to these world powers based off Romans chapter 13, but we must understand that God is the one in control. If something doesn't go our way, that's okay because God's still in control. If we don't agree with brethren, that's okay because God is still in control. If we can understand and unify ourselves under that, then we'll be okay. We also understand that God is intentional. Notice how before every sign, every part of that sign or every, every beginning of that sign, God says to Moses and the Lord spoke to Moses. God convened with Moses and Aaron before the sign was performed. God was very intentional to Moses and God was very relational in that as well. The last lesson that I want us to learn is that Jesus delivers. Jude verse 5, there's some uh, New Testament criticism that's going on in the Greek text, but we must understand that Bruce Metzger would classify Jesus, E.A. to be in that first manuscript or in the earliest or oldest manuscript of Jude 5. Most translations um, omit the, the word Jesus, but there Jude says, therefore, you once fully knew that our Lord Jesus saved you out of a land, land of Egypt. Most translations will just say the Lord who saved you up out of a land of Egypt. But when we look at the manuscripts, Jesus is there. And when you connect that to Judges chapter 2 and verse 1, I won't say the pre-incarnate Christ, but the pre-manifestation of Christ's glory as the angel of the Lord, definite article, angel of the Lord. 
the angel of the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When you connect those two, we understand that God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, however you want to put it, God is the one who delivers us. Jesus is the one who delivers us. Jesus is the lamb, the Passover lamb that we have, and we take his blood and we mark ourselves as those who follow Christ. May we be a people who are found in the land of Goshen. What an interesting way of saying that. What an interesting concept to think about. But all this time, God was making sure that he was known and that his people were known. May we be a people who are witnesses of God's power, who are proclaimers of Jesus' saving grace, and who are people who are found in the land of Goshen, who are wholly devoted to God. Thank you for your time.